The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. Church, how you doing this morning? You catch your breath after that worship? It's good stuff. Got a little cardio in today during worship. Breathe in the nose, out the mouth, right? So good to have you with us. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Josh, and me and my wife Sarah, we pastor New Song Church. We're so glad to have you here with us today. If you're new to New Song, make sure after the service is over, you stop by, say hi to us in the lobby. Also, would you help me, church, in welcoming everyone that's watching online right now with us? Let them know. We're glad that you're you're tuning in. We have an online audience that tunes in with us every week. So ministry is happening here, but it's actually happening all over the world, which is really cool. And I'm up here for just a moment because I'm going to get out of the way because Sarah been on the mountain this week. She got a word from the Lord. She bringing it. Uh, but we are going to do something that I love to do here at New Song Church, and that is we are going to plant some people, some people in our church this morning. Uh, so if that's you, if you're one of those people that went through Next Steps and now you are here today to be planted, somebody has contacted you lately about being planted, would you start making your way down yes. this morning? Give and let's hand welcome hand them. Yeah, down. as they come. Isn't this great? So much. We have 19 people joining the church this weekend. We've had yeah. 88 people join this year And good-looking so people, too. And like, we're yeah, good-looking church. Yeah, I love it. So awesome. Yes. So if those of you who don't know, uh, this is uh, people that have gone through Next Steps, which is our online uh, membership classes. You learn about the heart of our church, what we're all about. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that. And then what we do is we plant you in this house, and we're welcoming new family members in. And we're going to take a moment here and make some covenant declarations with them this morning. And I love doing this. We do this every month. And one of the things I love about this is it not only allows us to... Uh, to partner with them as they make this commitment and, and these covenant declarations, but also helps us remember who we are and what we're called to do as the people of God as, as we've made this covenant and we continue to come back to it and ask ourselves the question, how am I doing with some of this stuff, all right? So uh, I'm gonna lead them in this. I'm gonna make some declarations. And if you agree with these, and I'm gonna invite everybody to do this, say, I have, I will, or I do, all right? Sound good? So here we go, here we go. Have you made an authentic profession of faith in Jesus Christ? If so, say, I have. Will you commit to engage in personal worship, obey the teachings of Scripture, and regularly fellowship with followers of Jesus? If so, say, I will. Will you commit to protecting the peace and purity of the church by acting in love, promoting unity, refusing to gossip, and pursuing biblical reconciliation? If so, say, I will. Will you support the worship and practices of the church by attempting to faithfully pray for and attend weekend services, partake in communion, and move towards the practice of generosity through regular giving? If so, say, I will. Will you commit to serving in and reinforcing the mission of the church by using your spiritual gifts to serve the church and the community? If so, say, I will. Have you read and understand New Song's statement of beliefs and agree to joyfully support the leadership, vision, mission, and values of New Song Church? If so, say, I have. Do you understand that the above commitments can't be maintained without relying on the Holy Spirit to work in your life and without certain commitments on your part? If so, say, I do. 
New Song Church, would you help me welcome all these newest members of our church family? And then would you extend your hand towards them and Sarah's going to lead us in a prayer over them. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your spirit. May your spirit inhabit this home, making of it a sanctuary where hearts and lives are knit together, where bonds of love are strengthened, where mercy is learned and practiced. May this church home be a harbor of anchorage and refuge and a haven from which we journey forth to do your work in your world. May this place be a garden of nourishment in which our roots go deep, that we might bear fruit for the nourishing of others. May this, our new home, their new church home, may this be a place of knowing and of being known a place of shared tears and laughter, a place where forgiveness is easily asked and granted and wounds are quickly healed. May this be a place of meaningful conversation, of words not left unsaid, a place of joining, of becoming, of creating and reflecting, a place where our diverse gifts are named and appreciated, where we learn to serve one another and to serve our neighbors as well. May this be a place where our stories are forever twined by true affection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Keep your hands extended towards them. We're gonna declare God's word over them. You know our old word declaration, you guys remember that? We're gonna declare that over them right now as they enter into this family. We declare that they are the head and not the tail. They are above only and not beneath. They are blessed coming in and blessed going out and everything they set their hands to will prosper in Jesus name. Amen. 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 If you guys would right over here in the shadows is Miss, Miss Heather. If you will follow her, she's going to lead you to get some swag, some different stuff. Come on, let's give him a hand yes. one more time and I'm going to get out the way. And if you do not know, thank you, Josh. If you do not know these guys and they happen to come sit by you, introduce yourself, invite them to lunch. Like, let's get to know our brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, let's not just sit by these people week in and week out. Let's like do life with them. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, I'm excited to get into the message, but before we do, I have just one quick announcement. Landmark Assembly is coming up. It is on Wednesday night, September the 7th. And um, if you've never been to Landmark Assembly, you don't know what it is. It's like a worship night, extended worship, altar ministry. And then we have a special guest minister coming in. His name is Pastor Lee Cummings. And I am so pumped to have Pastor Lee here. He pastors Radiant Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. We're actually a Radiant Network church. We love what this church is all about. And the last song that we did that just slaps, like that song is so full of the joy of the Lord. It's nuts. That is a song from Radiant City. It drops on Spotify this week, so you have to be looking for that. Yeah, you can rock out to your in your uh, in your car. Um, but Pastor Lee's from Radiant City and our Radiant Church, and he's going to be here, and it's going to be so awesome. So we are asking that you reserve your seats because, like, realize this is one service. We have two other services. Not everyone is going to be able to make it, which is super sad. It'll be online, but. Get your ticket, save your seat. I think there was 100 spots left. So get your ticket, it's free. Reserve your childcare. If you can't get childcare because it's already filled, find a babysitter and be here. You won't want to miss it. And on that note, I'm gonna implore you once again, second service, 
to please, please move to Saturday service if it is at all possible. Saturdays um, are, start at five. Starting on September 10th, they're gonna start at four and we need room in this service. You know, we're building a building. We're getting ready to break ground, but we're gonna be in this building a little while longer. We're looking at adding services, but in the meantime, could you please help us and move? Somebody say move, move, please. Don't just think somebody else will do it so I don't have to do it like you do it, please. Okay, all right. Week three, say I'm gonna move. Okay, week three, what did Jesus do? We're in week three of what did Jesus do? And in this series, we are examining the actions of Jesus. Get out your Being Transformed journal. If you have it, let me see it. Let me see that journal. Where's your journals at? I love it. We're almost to the end of this one. We've got like a week left, which means there's a new one out in the lobby for you. This is a free resource for the New Song Church family. And it's all about helping us practice disciplines like being in God's word daily, abiding in the word, transformational community, uh, a prayer. It's all there in the journal. And so we want to encourage you to pick one up and participate. Do the journal with the church. I promise you, you will see transformation. If you will commit to being in God's word every day, we show you what to read. We're all reading the same thing. You can talk to your friends, your small group about what you're seeing in the word. It's been awesome. One of the most transformational things we've ever done as a church. So make sure you get your journal. Uh, they start, the, the new uh, journal starts in September. So they're out there. They're orange. Pick it up. All right. Okay. Week three, what did Jesus do? Actions of Jesus. I'm sure you've noticed that 90s fashion is back. Have you noticed? My girls are wearing like a bucket hats and big bulky jewelry. Maddie's got her Doc Martens on this morning. There's the biker shorts, the cruise socks, the big sweatshirts, scrunchies, claw clips, Princess Diana vibes everywhere. Super cute, love it. My nephew started school uh, and, and he had like his first day of school hair was like Jonathan Taylor Thomas, JTT, just rocking some Jonathan Taylor Thomas. It's back. And I'm seeing lots of WWJD bracelets that have come back. If you're wearing one, let me see. If you got a WWJD, you got one on, got one on. How many of you had a WWJD bracelets in the 90? You had one? I had one. You remember like it was big, so you'd cut it and then it would start to fray and then you'd burn, you'd burn it so it wouldn't fray. You guys remember doing that? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Great little bracelet, birthed in the 90s, but not super effective unless you know what Jesus did, right? We can't do what Jesus did if we do not know what Jesus did. And further, we cannot do what he did if we don't do the things that he did that enabled him to do the things that he did. And even though Jesus is the most interesting person that ever walked the face of the earth, there are very few that find him interesting enough to study what he did and even fewer that make the connection with how he did what it is that he did, what enabled him to do what he did, which is a really sad thing because scripture says it is our destiny to be transformed into his image. And Jesus himself said that those who believe in me, these things that I do, that they will do even greater things. But many are not studying the life of Jesus, trying to figure out how he did what he did, paying attention to his rhythms, his practices, his disciplines. And so we're not able to do what Jesus did. If we want to do what Jesus did, we must train as Jesus 
trained, which is what this series is about. So this week, we're going to be looking at what Jesus did when he encountered doubters. Doubters. Just like all of us are going to face temptation, week one. All of us are going to encounter difficult people, week two. All of us, everyone is going to encounter doubts about God, and we will encounter people, our spouse, our children, our family, our siblings, our small group, our coworkers, people in our schools that are dealing with doubts about God. Is he really good? Is he really good all of the time? Does he really hear me when I'm praying? Is his word really true? Is he really faithful? Does he really care about what's going on in our world? There's a long list of doubters in the Bible. Adam and Eve doubted God's word, his goodness, and his wisdom in the perfect Garden of Eden. Moses doubted his calling to lead the Israelites out of slavery. Gideon doubted that what God said about him being a mighty hero was true. Elijah, after literally seeing fire fall from heaven, doubted God's protection. Jeremiah doubted God could use him because of his young age. Abraham and Sarah doubted God could give them a child because of their old age. I could go on and on talking about the different people that doubted God in scripture, but we would be here all afternoon. The point I'm trying to make is that we all deal with doubt. And maybe you're thinking, nope, not me. This message is not for me. I do not deal with doubt. I have arrived. I never, ever, ever, ever question God's goodness. I never doubt his faithfulness. I never wonder if his timing is off. I am steadfast and immovable, Sarah. I am always abounding in the work of the Lord. I do not deal with doubt. I will show you my strengths finder results. Belief is my number one strength. Clifton says so, no doubt here. Okay, calm down. Gwen Stefani, calm down. <laughs> nothing, nothing second service. Come on, Gwen Stefani, no doubt. That's funny. First service laughed. First service laughed, no doubt. Okay, but really, if, you, if that's you and you're thinking, I, I don't deal with that, I want to encourage you to really search your heart because sometimes pride, like needing to be known as this person of great faith, and sometimes our past, like the family of origin, the denomination we grew up under, can cause us to have a wrong perspective of doubt or to see that we have doubt. Like, you can't mention your doubts. You have what you say. We only need to speak words of faith. Like, don't talk about your doubt. Sometimes your pride, your past, a mixture of both can, can hinder you from seeing that you have doubt, from admitting that you're dealing with doubt, and ultimately it can keep you from dealing with doubt. Yeah. And that's a dangerous place to be because doubt is not good. We don't want to be in a place of doubt. But if someone can't see that they are dealing with it, they're not going to ask God to help them move from doubt to a place of trust. Doubt needs to be dealt with. But it's kind of hard for God to deal with it if you don't even see or are willing to admit that you're facing some doubt. For instance, let me give you an example here. Somebody goes outside the covenant of marriage for sexual pleasure, for thrills. And this shows that they're riddled with doubt. They do not doubt God's word. 
They do, or they do doubt God's word. They doubt God's goodness. They doubt at the very core of who they are that God truly can satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. If they believed that at their core, then they wouldn't go to these other places seeking pleasure outside of his will. They think they have a lust problem and, and that's there too, but underneath that, there's something stemming from a doubt about God and who he really is and who he wants to be in their life. All sin and all fall short of the glory of God. That's, so it's safe to say that if all sin, then all doubt because sin can always be traced back to doubting God. Jesus never sinned. You know why he never sinned? Because he had this unwavering trust in God the Father. He believed in every fiber of his being that God is good, that his will is perfect, that he was loved by his Father. He had unwavering trust. This is why scripture says that if we want to overcome sin, that we need to arm ourselves with something. Do you know what it tells us to arm ourselves with? We need to arm ourselves with the same mindset that Christ Jesus had. A mindset that says, I trust you, Abba Father, with an unwavering trust. You are good. Your will is pleasing. Your plans are good. I trust you. So maybe you're in here this morning and you're, you're dealing with some sin, cycles of sin. You're tired of it dominating you. Maybe it's time to really examine your heart and see where you're doubting God so that you can bring those doubts to God like David did. David was very honest with the Lord when he experienced doubt. God, have you forgotten me? He writes this, puts it out there. God, have you forgotten me? We need to bring our doubts to God and then sit there and wait. Strength will rise when we wait upon the Lord. Bring it to him and then wait and then wait and then wait as long as it takes for him to come and lift your head and tell you I have never forgotten you. In fact, my thoughts about you outnumber the grains of sand that I am with you. I've been with you all along. I've never for a day in your life put you in the rear view. I love you. Let me lift your head. Let me move you from this place of doubt to being in awe and you trusting in me no matter matter what. We need to pay attention to doubt. We also need to pay attention because we're going to encounter those who are struggling with this oppression. And we need to know how to respond to them and how to help them through it. So here's what we're seeking to find out today. How did Jesus respond to doubters? How should we respond to doubters? And what did Jesus do that enabled him to respond the way he did Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you, God, for your word. My prayer today is like we sang out, God, let us see you for who you really are. We wanna see you, God, for who you really are. Show us your heart. Show us the heart of Jesus. Show us, God. I pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. We are listening. Speak to us, God. We are locked in. You deserve all of our attention, all of our devotion right now. We are locked in. What do you want to say? We are here for you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Okay, how did Jesus respond to doubters? Well, he has several encounters throughout the New Testament with doubters, shout the Gospels, but I want to zero in on two different scenes, two different doubters, and two different types of doubt. I really wanted to do three, but it became apparent, very obvious, I was not going to have near enough time to do three, but I want to encourage you, go read the story of Doubting Thomas through this lens. It's really, really good. Okay, so Matthew 14. Matthew 14, turn there. This is our first scene. Scene one, it's in a boat on a stormy sea. The person that's dealing with doubt is Peter, and the kind of doubt that he's dealing with is a distracted doubt. Matthew 14, 22 through 33, you can follow along on the screens. It says, immediately... He, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. It's very formal. It is a ghost. Not, it's a, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this is a very familiar story. If you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard it a lot of times. And usually when we look at the story, we're looking at it like we're Peter in the story and we're like thinking through it from that perspective. But when we're studying what did Jesus do, looking through some of these familiar scriptures, it's so cool to see it from that perspective, from that lens. We're really focused on the actions of Jesus in this story. Okay, so between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the disciples are out in a boat that Jesus sent them away on. And they're worn out. They've been rowing against some intense waves. All of a sudden, they look out and they see Jesus walking towards them. Only at first, they don't know it's Jesus. So they're terrified. They're freaked out. But Jesus reassures them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And I love Peter here because Peter takes heart. Like he takes some serious heart. He takes some courage. He takes on, he takes hold of these words of Jesus. He realizes that it's Jesus who's saying these words. It's like he recognizes Jesus before any of the disciples uh, recognize Jesus because he yells out, Lord, not Lord, but Lord, if it's you, tell me to come, which can better be translated, Lord, since it is you, tell me to come. He is taking heart. I love this request. It seems odd to us. But I love what this commentator Carson says. He says, this request is bold, but the disciples had been trained for some time and given power to do exactly the sort of miracles Jesus was doing. What is more natural than for a fisherman who knew and respected the dangers of Galilee to want to follow Jesus in this new demonstration of supernatural power? This is taking apprenticeship like to the next level. Like he is following 
his rabbi, the dust of his rabbi. He wants to do exactly what Jesus is doing. So he's taking heart. He's obeying the word of the Lord. And notice that when, when, when Peter cries out, Lord, since it's you, tell me to come, that Jesus' response isn't, uh, Peter, be humble, sit down. It's not what he says. That's not, that's not what he does. He says, Peter, come on with it. Come on, Peter. And I believe this is a picture of the heart of Jesus. Like, when he sees us beginning to step out and like take heart and take him at his word and obey and want to follow after him, he's not saying, hold back. He's saying, come on, Peter. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water and comes to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink out, he cried, Lord, save me. Now, when I read this this week over and over, like imagining this scene in my mind's eye, I found myself wondering how many steps did Peter take on the water before he went from trusting Peter to full of faith or full of doubt Peter? How many steps did he take going from unwavering trust to wavering doubt? How many steps in between jumping out of the boat in confidence to sinking in fear? How many steps did he take on the water before going from being certain in the power of Jesus to being certain of the power of the wind and the waves? Eyes on Jesus fully locked in. How many steps did he take just zeroed in on Jesus before he started looking around and being distracted by the circumstances? You're going to have Peter moments. Your spouse is going to have Peter moments. Your children are going to have Peter moments. Your siblings, your parents, your small group, the people that you do life with are going to have Peter moments. Moments where they are so full of faith one minute. Moments where they are singing out, Spirit, lead me into deeper waters where my trust is without borders and the next moment they are sinking in doubt because they lost a job because they got a bad diagnosis, because they found out that their spouse was cheating on them, because that person that they'd been praying for died, because they didn't make the team, because their best girl broke their heart, called off the engagement, full of faith, one moment sinking in doubt the next. All they can see are the waves that the wind is blowing up. They've got salt water in their eyes. They've swallowed a bunch of seaweed. What do you do in these moments? How do you respond to yourself when you face doubts caused by your distracting circumstances? Then how do you respond to your loved ones, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your children, your spouse, when they're facing doubt caused by distracting circumstances? How did Jesus respond? He gives us a beautiful, beautiful picture of how we respond. In verse 31, Let's look at it again. It says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. I want to point out four things that we observe in the actions of Jesus here and his response to doubting Peter. The first one, his response was immediate. It was immediate. When Peter realized he was sinking, he called out to the Lord, save me. And Jesus did not hesitate. His response was not to let Peter sink about six feet under and then dive down and pull him out. His response was not to like let him kind of be out there struggling a while, like thinking to himself, I'll teach this guy to never come boldly to the son of man again. It's not what he did. He reached 
out immediately. His response was immediate. So I've got two questions for you to think about. One, how great is your response time when you hear about a friend, a family member, a child that's going through distracting circumstances that are likely to leave them sinking in doubt, hesitating, fluctuating, wavering? And second, how great is your response time when you're facing doubt? Do you, like Peter, immediately cry out or do you just kind of let yourself sink a little bit deeper day by day into the dark waters of doubt. I think sometimes God's response time gets a bad rap. Like, you know how on Facebook, it's like, how is this business response time? I think God's response time gets a bad rap because his vessels here on earth are not responding quickly enough to people that they see beginning to sink in doubt. And on the other hand, his response time is delayed because we are not crying out for him to help us when we begin facing doubt. So the whole thing, the whole time frame, it's delayed, it's skewed, it's warped. I believe God's calling us to be more prompt in our response time to those struggling to keep their eyes on the Lord because of the distracting circumstances around them. What's your response? For example, when you hear that somebody has just lost their job, do you call them up? Like a real call, like with your voice. Um, And exhort them, encourage them, speak the word over them, speak scripture over them, point them to Jesus, help them get their eyes on Jesus? Or do you give them space and hope that everything works out? His response was immediate. Number two, his response was tangible. Okay, think about this. Jesus is walking on water. He can do anything. There's any number of creative methods that he could have used to get Peter back on the boat. He could have sent a wave like in Moana that picks up cute little baby Moana and puts her back on the shore. He could have put Peter back into the boat with a wave. He could have sent a whale to swallow Peter and spit him into the boat. He could have said, peace be still and made the sea calm down and save Peter some face and let Peter like a big boy walk back into the boat unassisted. But that's not what he did. His response was tangible. He reached out his hand. Imagine the intense level of comfort bound up in that touch. The very hand of God reaching out for Peter and pulling him up out of the water, taking hold of Peter. This is such an intimate and such a personal gesture. His response was tangible. Listen, when you are dealing with doubt, that same tangible, the manifest presence of God wants to reach out for you and take hold of you and pull you out of doubt. In one of the hardest moments of my life, in a dark hospital room at 3 a.m., preparing to give birth to a stillborn baby boy, knowing that he would not cry. The wind and the waves beating so violently against our souls in that moment. But as I'm getting ready to push, the presence, the manifest presence of God filled that room. I knew that I knew that I knew that Jesus was behind me. He was behind me. The manifest presence of God was there 
pulling me out of this dark pit. I had a lot of questions running through my mind that night that I never got the answers to, still don't have the answers to all of the whys that run through your mind when you face something like that. But it turns out I didn't need the answers because I had the manifest presence of God. And his hand reaching out for me was the only thing I needed to breathe again, to cling to him, to put the entire weight of my life into him to lean not on my own understanding but to trust in him because his manifest presence broke through his hand reached out for me i'm telling you parents if your kids are dealing with doubt hug them all of the time keep your hands on them pray for people let the same spirit that raised christ from the dead that lives in you be manifest with your you be the hands and the feet of jesus you be present your presence your tangible presence let God be with you and go in their rooms and just pray. Pray God's presence down. Pray for an open heaven over the room. They may, may be up at night tossing and turning, turning, wondering if God is good and his presence can reach down and grab hold of them and bring them out of layers of doubt. His response was tangible. His response was honest and challenging. He said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Jesus spoke the truth and he asked hard questions. Notice this was after Peter was safe in the arms of Jesus. Jesus wasn't trying to have this conversation when he's thinking like, why did you doubt? No, he's got him. He's safe in the arms of Jesus, but he asked him these questions. Charles Spurgeon says, the Lord Jesus virtually addresses Peter by the name of little faith. In one word, like a rapper, little faith. I can I can't hear Jesus saying this in a mean <laughs> in a mean or condescending tone. I can only hear this in a sweet loving tone. Little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? When we encounter people dealing with doubt, are we grace-filled? Are we truth-filled in our response as Jesus was responding to Peter? Are we bold enough to say, "Where's your faith?" Like I know that you just lost your job, but come on. Where's your faith, sister? Let's stir it up. Let's go. Let's recall God's faithfulness. Let's recount God's faithfulness. Let's remind our souls to bless him. Let's practice what we preach, what we know is true. Waymaker, miracle worker, you believe it, right? Come on, let's stir up your faith. Where's your faith? Are we bold enough to challenge people with those questions? We need to speak honestly. We need to challenge the little faith that we see in people and the little faith that we see in ourselves. Jesus wanted Peter to know it wasn't the weather that caused him to start sinking. It was his little faith. We need to ask questions like, why are you doubting? I love that he just point blank. Why are you doubting? Notice Peter didn't have a response. I believe it's because as Peter thought about that for a second, he didn't have an answer. There was no reason for him to doubt Jesus. Jesus had never given him reason to doubt his commands or his faithfulness. This question was meant to challenge Peter's doubt and show him that his doubt had no leg to stand on. Jesus was honest and challenging. We need to ask that question, why are you doubting? We need to give our souls time to answer that question when we ask it to ourselves. And we need to put that question out there for people we see sinking and give them time to answer. Number four, we see his response was fatherly. I love this one. 
Verse 32, it says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Jesus got into the boat with Peter. He could have kept walking on the water because that was probably fun and cool. He could have gone back to his mountain to have some more alone time, but he got in the boat with Peter. And I think this perfectly images the heart of Father God. It's something that I've seen in Josh over and over and over again with our kids where they'll come in and they're scared, they can't sleep, they don't feel good. We pray with them. And then oftentimes, Josh goes to get in bed with them until they fall asleep. Because he knows, like Jesus knows here in this moment, that proximity promotes peace. Proximity promotes peace. So Jesus gets on the boat with Peter like a father climbing into a day bed with a toddler. Because they know Proximity promotes peace. Instead of distancing himself from doubters, Jesus draws closer to them. Then Christ in you wants to get in the boat with people who are doubting. He doesn't want you to push them away. He wants you to get in the boat and sit with them until they move from that place of doubt, like the disciples, to worshipful trust. At the end of this encounter, they are in awe of Jesus. How are you doing with this? When you encounter people dealing with doubt, is your response to ignore them? To think to yourself, they just need to buck up. Like, use your faith, dude. Like, trust God. Speak the word. Don't you know, like, some verses to speak? Um, Or is your response, like, Jesus? Is it immediate, tangible, honest, challenging, fatherly? How did he respond? How is he able to respond in such a perfect way? How did he do what he did? We get a glimpse in verse 22 and 23, the beginning of the story. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Pastor Josh talked about this last week, slip away time, solitude, time alone, just Jesus in God. Hear me, if you do not spend time alone with God daily, You'll never be able to help people out of doubt like Jesus helped Peter out of doubt. Further, you won't be able to help yourself out of doubt because you're not spending any time with the Lord asking him to examine your heart and show you places of doubt so you just keep going on through the motions. I have three kids and we've walked through some struggles with them, some disappointments with them, like where they've been praying and believing and fighting for something and it doesn't turn out the way that they wanted it to. It seemed like God's not listening, God's not responding, God's not moving. And I promise you, I would not have a clue how to help them through that wall of doubt to a place of worshipful trust if I myself was not spending time alone with God, if I wasn't going up to the mountain to pray. I really want you to hear me, parents. I don't know if you're there yet, maybe you're not, but it's coming. The little faiths in your house When things happen and and they go from great faith to little faith, they're going to need you, mom and dad, to know how to be there, to know how to respond, to respond immediately. They're going to need you, but you won't be able to respond if you haven't been alone with the Lord. I don't have 12 disciples, but I have three. And if Jesus needed time away, to pray in order to lead his disciples. I know I need time away to lead mine. I don't have a mountain, sadly, to go away to and pray, but I have a chair 
And I'm in that chair day after day after day. My kids see me in that chair. They find me in that chair every single morning. During sabbatical, they saw me in that chair for hours on end. When we go on vacation, they know that mom is going to find her mountain to go and be alone with the Lord. That there's not a day of my life that goes by that I don't spend a great quantity of time in the presence of the Lord, time away with God. Jesus was jealous for time spent alone with his father. And in the midst of his great ministry to others, he did not, he could not neglect prayer. Same. In the midst of my ministry to others, church aside, just my three kids and my husband, and the ministry to my family, I did not, cannot, will not neglect prayer. I want to do what he did, but I can't do what he did if I don't do what he did. Are you jealous for time spent alone with God? Want to do what Jesus did? Be jealous for time with him. Matthew 11, scene two. Somebody say scene two. You guys with me? All right. Matthew 11, flip back a couple pages in your Bibles. Scene two takes place in Herod's prison. The person that's dealing with doubt here is John the Baptist. And the kind of doubt is a deconstructing doubt. Somebody say, hmm deconstructing, deconstructing doubt. Okay, here we go. Matthew 11, verses two through six. It says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, John the Baptist is perhaps the most surprising doubter in scripture because he has such a unique history with Jesus. You know, the story of John the Baptist, he is pointing people to the Messiah, preparing the coming of the Messiah. He is down at the Jordan River. He is baptizing people, telling them to repent of their sin for salvation is coming. And he's out there doing his thing one day at the Jordan. He sees this man walking toward him and he has this revelation from heaven. Behold, this is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And then he proceeds to baptize Jesus not because Jesus needed to be baptized, but because Jesus wanted to fully identify with you and with me. So he baptizes Jesus, and then John proceeds to witness the Holy Spirit landing on Jesus and remaining on Jesus. Nobody else has this story but John. Nobody else can say that they saw the Holy Spirit land and descend on Jesus. Nobody else can say that they got to baptize Jesus. Nobody else can say that the, the revelation from he the heavens opened up and, and revealed the Messiah to them. Nobody else can say, I left in my mother's womb when pregnant Mary came to see my pregnant mom. Nobody else has this history with Jesus like John has this history with Jesus. Now, the day that John baptized Jesus, it marked the beginning of the end of his ministry because now Jesus is on the scene. He's been revealed. And so now John is pointing everybody towards Jesus. John is the one who said the famous words, Christ must 
increase and I must decrease. And that's what John did. He began to point people to Jesus and he began to decrease and he did it joyfully. But in the process of pointing people to Jesus and in the process of decreasing, he gets himself thrown into prison. And I know that John was not surprised when he got thrown into prison because he knew he was barking up the wrong tree when he was calling out the unlawful wedding union marriage of psycho Herod and even more psychotic Herodias. He knew what he was doing. He knew like this wasn't going to end well for him. He knew the risks, but he wanted to proclaim the truth. He's in prison. I don't think he was surprised that he was there, but I do think that he was surprised by the amount of oppressive doubt that he was being tormented with. He was being tormented. I wonder if not by the devil himself, by oppressive doubt, deconstructing doubt. He begins to doubt if he'd been right about his calling as a forerunner. There'd been many false prophets before. Maybe Jesus was just another one of those false prophets. Come to think of it, his ministry doesn't really look a lot like I imagined it in my head. I imagine him going through all the prophecies and, and, and trying to go back to that day at the Jordan, maybe wondering like, did I just eat too many locusts the night before? Too much honey? Like, was I just like not, was that really the voice of God? Like, what was going on that day? Did I miss it? He's going through very real doubt and the devil's not relenting, just heaping more and more doubt on John. John did not want to die wondering if he had been wrong about Jesus. So he asked two of his disciples to find Jesus. They do. And they say, Jesus, JTB wants to know, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He's face to face. Jesus is face to face with doubt. The one who had been preparing the way for the Messiah and pointing people to the Messiah is now doubting Jesus. Are you really the one? And Jesus responds in the most beautiful way. He turns to John's disciple and says, why don't you spend some time with me? And then go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. He didn't throw a scroll at them and say, tell John to read this. He didn't say, tell John to question nothing. He didn't try to have these two disciples or John killed. Unlike some so-called prophets, the honorable Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, one of his greatest cheerleaders, begins to question all the affairs that the honorable prophet Elijah Muhammad is having. And what happens to Malcolm X? He gets killed. He gets silenced. This isn't Jesus, Jesus isn't just some random prophet like trying to, to prevent people yes. from doubting him. He knows yes. he's the Messiah. Yes. And so he's not afraid of the doubters. So he invites John's friends to be near him and he goes around doing ministry. These disciples watch, they observe, and then Jesus says with kindness and compassion in his eyes, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. Would you? Would you go tell John what you've seen and what you heard? So they go back to John and they say, John, we saw Jesus restoring sight to the blind and hearing the deaf. We saw him set a lame man walking. We heard that he is raising people from the dead. We saw him cleanse a, le a leper. We saw him preaching the good news to the poor. They're like so excited. They're going like 90 miles a minute. And then as they're doing this, John, 
as they report these things, he would immediately recognize that all of the things that they're listing out are prophesied about the Messiah in Isaiah. And this is exactly what John needed to hear to go back to that place at the Jordan River where he knew that he knew that he knew that he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe you've found yourself being tormented with doubt. You used to be Jordan John, but recently you felt more like jail John, questioning, deconstructing, maybe following like a friend or some influencer that you don't know who has decided to deconstruct live on Instagram. You're wondering, is Jesus really the one? You've been burned by a church group. Maybe as you start to read the word, you're realizing that a lot of things that you were taught growing up were taught to you out of context, and that's causing you to feel some doubt and to want to question some things, but you're like, I'm afraid to question some things. What am I going to find if I start searching for the truth? Perhaps that's not you personally, but you know somebody who's going through this. How do we respond? Jesus gives us a great model in his response to John's deconstructing doubt. Three things. His response was acknowledgement. He acknowledged John's doubt by acknowledging his friends. Like he didn't just ignore them or try to get them to go away, silence them, hush them. He acknowledged them and invited him, invited them to do ministry, to watch him do ministry. So when a friend or a loved one expresses doubt, what's your response? Is it to uh, hush them, block them, hide them? Or is it to acknowledge that this person is dealing with some spiritual oppression that's causing them to question aspects of their faith. Like a person at small group pipes up and says, I don't believe that God is good all the time because blah. Are you like, okay, next question. Next, let's get to the next, like, let's wrap this small group up. Let's go get some cookies. Or do you let them talk it out? Your teenager says, I don't know if I believe all the Bible anymore. What do you do? Are you dismissive? God doesn't do that with John. Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. God's so merciful with John. Like John doesn't wanna die wondering if he was right or wrong about Jesus. Jesus doesn't want John to die questioning if he was right or wrong about Jesus. Jesus was merciful with John. He acknowledged the doubt. Second, we we see in Jesus, his response was displaying grace and power. Jesus invited the disciples to spend time with him. When people are questioning the reality of God or the goodness of God, the best place that they can be is a place where the grace of God is on display, where the grace of God is being made visible, where the power of God is on display. Right here this morning where the joy of the Lord is on display, where people are in love with Jesus and they're committing and devoting their lives to Jesus, hopefully, God's grace and his power is on display in our homes, around our dinner tables. And we can bring people, invite them into our homes where his grace and his power are on display. Hopefully it's on display in your small group. Hopefully it's on display in these church services. We need to invite people to study the gospels with us. Like if you have a child that's dealing with doubts about Jesus, you can't just hope that those go away. Bring them in and get your crap together and go and study the word with them. 
Like, this is too big of a deal to just hope that they get it figured out in Boomtown and Threshold. They're doing a great job back there, but parents, you've got to be in. You've got to raise your kids. You've got to train them in the way that they should go. Study the Gospels with your kids. And being transformed is not about you just being a better person. Transformation is never just for us alone. It's for the people in our lives so that they can see the grace and the power of God on display in our lives. Third, we see his response was staying on mission. He stayed on mission. He didn't let the doubts of John hinder his ministry. When Jesus heard that John was struggling, he didn't stop what he was doing and travel quite a great distance to get to John. He didn't allow doubt to keep him from fulfilling his purpose. In fact, it was him fulfilling his purpose that helped John move to the place of trust that he needed to move to. Like Jesus didn't go to the jail and like stop everything and be like, John, buddy, it's me, Jesus. Remember me at the Jordan? You baptized me and the the Holy Spirit. Like, it's me. You know it's me. Why are you questioning me? That's not what he did. He just stayed on mission because he knew that him staying on mission was exactly what John needed to hear to know that Jesus was the Messiah because the things that he was doing are things that only the Messiah could do. He stayed on mission. Listen, as more and more people deconstruct and wrestle with doubt about God, the church must stay focused on doing what we're called to do. We must stay focused on doing what we're called to do, which is ministering first and foremost to the Lord. And second, it's seeing Christ formed in people. Ministering to the Lord and seeing Christ formed in people. If churches would stay on mission and stay on point, I believe that we'd see a lot less people deconstructing. Like, think about it. If everyone in this city that proclaims that Jesus is Lord, if they really lived like they believed the only acceptable form of Christianity is one that we are being transformed into his image more and more with each passing year. If everyone really believed that's the only acceptable form of Christianity that we actually look like Jesus, serve like Jesus, love like Jesus, give like Jesus, devote our entire lives to beholding Jesus, if everyone who proclaimed Jesus as Lord would really believe that's what it's about and not just coming and sitting and warming a seat and then getting up and leaving and putting a couple bucks in the offering plate and calling it a day, We'd have a lot less people deconstructing. We'd have a lot less people doubting that God is real because the church would be unified and the church would be the bride of Christ, perfect and spotless and awaiting the return of Jesus. People would see us unified. They would pay attention to what we're doing. But that's not what's happening in our country. That's not what's happening in our city. We have Christians just going through the motions. People that are gonna get to heaven and here, depart from me for I never knew you. But wait, I I said you were savior. I said a prayer and I went to church, but I didn't know you as my friend and you didn't know me. Listen, this is what we're up against in our city. There's a lot of people who know more about their politicians and their parties and everything than they do about Jesus and who he is and who he is in them. We have to stay on mission, church. We're here to minister to the Lord and to see Christ formed in people. 
Jesus acknowledged John's doubts. He displayed grace and power and he stayed on mission. How did he do it? He knew the scripture. He knew the scripture. He knew the scripture so well, he was blowing the rabbi's minds at age 12. Jesus was aware of who he was based on scripture, just as we are to be aware of who he is based on scripture. You wanna do what Jesus did? You need to know who Christ is in you. You need to study Jesus. Now there's a lot of talk about who we are in Christ, and that's great. We need to know who we are in Christ. Adopted, sons and daughters, we're the temple. We need to know who we are in Christ, but what if we got really caught up on who Christ is in us? Who is this Christ, the Christ that's in me? What if we got so consumed like, Jesus, you are my quest. You are my quest. I'm gonna be so caught up with who you are in me so I can image that out to the world around me. If we wanna do what Jesus did, we have to wake up to the reality of the one who lives within us. And a great way to do that is in the book of Isaiah. There's go through the gospels, obviously the gospels, you should be reading through those over and over and over again. But I love the book of Isaiah. There's four servant songs in the book of Isaiah that talk about the Messiah that is to come. And think about this with me. This week I was thinking about this and it's so cool and so trippy and so like, whoa. But Jesus, he discovered who he was partly by reading scripture partly by reading Isaiah. And we have those same scriptures to read today that have lasted all these years. The grass fades, the flowers wither, but the word of the Lord stand firm forever. We have access to the same text that Jesus is reading, discovering who he is. Why aren't we reading these texts to discover who he is in us and who we are to be? Google this week, Isaiah, the suffering servant songs. They're amazing. Isaiah 42, three, I wanna read you one verse from one of these songs. And I want you to imagine Jesus reading this and getting the revelation of this is who the Christ is. This is who he is. A bruised reed, he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. A bruised reed, he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. What does this mean? Reeds were used in the ancient worlds for lots of things, pens to build boats, to build houses. But if a reed got crushed, if it got damaged, then it was just broken and thrown to the side. And then in the ancient world, just like now, we, they needed illumination. They didn't have electricity, but they had in the Middle East these clay pots that they would put a little spout on and they'd put this wick, hang it out of the spout, fill the pot up with olive oil. And when the olive oil would start to burn down, there was a risk that this wick, this dimly lit wick would fall to the ground and still being on fire, catch the place on fire. So they, they would put these little pots of water to catch the falling, burning wick. Now the servant described in Isaiah, the Messiah, it says he will not break the bruised reed, and he will not quench the faintly burning wick. John was a bruised reed. John was exhausted. He was a faintly burning wick, but the servant handles him gently as not to break him. The servant handles him tenderly He pours more oil on John, blowing gently on John, 
fanning that faintly burning wick into full flame. He wasn't like, John, I've got my use out of you. You helped prepare the way. Now you're dead to me. Now I'm just going to throw you aside, let you burn out, let you fall into that pot of water, throw you aside, burn, burn the bruised reed. No, he says, I'm going to handle this man gently and tenderly. Often we think that God deals roughly with us in our weaknesses and in our failures and when we're doubting, but the opposite is true. He deals with us gently. He deals with us tenderly. He helps along the bruised reed until it finds its strength and its purpose again. He sees that faintly burning wick and he restores it. He, he gently blows on it until it is in full flame. Instead of seeing people, ourselves included, as struggling, when we're struggling with doubt, as weak, as wavering, double-minded, and, and, and somebody that we can just write off. Jesus says, you're a bruised reed, you're a faintly burning wick, but I'm not going to just throw you away. I'm gonna return strength to you. Will you let these beautiful attributes of Christ be formed in you? Will you respond this way to people who are doubting? Will you, will you respond this way to yourself when you're dealing with doubts? Will you reach out to the bruised, to the burning, those burning out and be a source of strength and refreshment for them? What did Jesus do when he encountered doubters? He pulled from the strength, forged in his time away with God. He pulled from what he studied and knew to be true of himself and he responded immediately, tangibly, honestly. He challenged doubt with the heart of a good father. He acknowledged it, displayed grace and power, and he stayed on mission. A bruised reed he did not break, and a faintly burning wick he did not quench. If you would, would you bow your heads? I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit a couple of questions. Where am I doubting? Why am I doubting? Show me the face of somebody that I'm in relationship with that is doubting, that is drowning, that is sinking in doubt, that I need to reach out to immediately, that I need to respond immediately to. Show me the face of someone doubting. Ask him if he's satisfied with the amount of time that you're spending alone with him. And ask him to show you where he's been gentle with you, where he's been tender with you, and to fully form these parts of him, that those parts of Jesus would be fully formed in us. I'm going to invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you're here today and you're dealing with doubt, our altar ministry team wants to be that tangible hand that reaches out, lays hands on you, prays for you, if, you're, if you got a face today of somebody that's dealing with doubt, you need to respond and you need to do it immediately. And maybe you're nervous about that. Like, ah, I don't know if I can do this. 
They wanna pray with you and ask God to give you boldness to reach out to help this person that's sinking in doubt. Or maybe you're here and it's nothing to do with the message, but you just have a prayer request of some kind. I know we're a little bit over, but I wanna wait here just a moment and let God continue to do what he's doing. I don't wanna rush the Holy Spirit. I don't wanna rush this moment. So if you would stand to your feet, we're gonna go back into a time of worship. Press in, like stay in the moment. You don't got nothing better to do. Stay in the moment. He's here and he's ministering to hearts. I believe that there's, there's a lot of people that need to respond to this altar ministry time. That you're dealing with doubt. You're dealing with condemnation. That you're, you're, you're afraid to ask questions. You know somebody who's deconstructing and you've maybe cut them off and now you're wondering how you bring them back into fellowship. There's, he wants to do something today at the altars. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every person that's in need of prayer and partnership to come forward to the altars, Lord. Continue to speak, continue to seal, continue to reveal what we need revealed, God. We love you and we're thankful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.